0: Welcome to Not So Standard Deviations. This is episode sixty-four, and I'm Roger Peng from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, and I'm here with Hillary Parker of Stitch Fix. In this episode, we're going to continue our book club, uh, and we're going to discuss Chapter Two of Design Thinking for, by Nigel Cross. And so, we hope you're enjoying this series as we're going through the various chapters of this book.
1: I have a really exciting anecdote I want to talk about. I've like, I've been like planning this, like wanting to talk about this. <laughs> Let's hear it. <laughs> yeah, so um like so the first chapter of this design thinking book, um, the author discussed this design for a citrus uh juicer. Yeah. You remember this? Who was the i I can't remember the name of the designer? It's that. like an
0: Italian company, if I recall. Um yeah, but I don't yeah. remember the name. And
1: so and they describe how the designer like came up with this when he was um, you know, like at a, at a restaurant eating squid <laughs> and like the idea like came to him, they have this sketch on the, um, placemat where he drew out this idea and it took him like 20 minutes to come up with the design that they ended up going with. Right. Right. Kind of a cool anyway. So later that week I was walking in my neighborhood and I like saw the citrus, juicer in the window of a store
0: well really um
1: yeah there was like a pop-up shop in the store near me um of like kind of like a moma pop-ups i mean they called it modern not the museum of modern art but it was all it was all items that are featured in the moma store so i figure it's some sort of collaboration but anyway i was like oh cool it's right there i like take a photo And so, this chapter was on race cars, right? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And specifically, this, like, Gordon uh, Murray, and they talk about the various cars he's designed, and one of them is called the McLaren F1. Yes. And it's like, there's only, I looked it up, and there's only, like, seven that are street legal in the U.S.
0: Yeah. Okay. And
1: I saw one this weekend. No, you
0: didn't.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I did. And I was so mad cause I actually hadn't read the chapter yet. Um, but we are staying at the four seasons in Silicon Valley for the long weekend. Um, which like as a tip to everyone, like if you go to hotels when it's, um, like a holiday weekend hotels that serve like a business setting, it's usually like a good way to stay at a fancy hotel on the cheap.
0: <laughs> oh yeah. Good call
1: yeah so that was our weekend and it was just like I was sitting there and I was reading something else and like I saw them like pull out this like super cute sports car and I was just like oh wow like that's a really fancy sports car um and we'd seen a previous like a lotus the day before I thought it was the same car because they are the same color but right yeah my my partner was telling me that they were not but yeah I was like looking at it and I was talking to him and I was like I was like, I think that car's the McLaren and I had no clue. <laughs> and he was just like, No, they don't make cars. They make like parts for cars. Right. Like that's so and then we <laughs> he walked over, he's like, Yeah, that's the McLaren and like looked in and you know. And then I get back and read this chapter and I was like, Are you kidding me? And it's like it's like a fifteen million dollar <laughs> sports car. <laughs> like...
0: So, you know, I'd say the story didn't quite go the way I thought was gonna go which is that i was gonna i thought you were gonna like you have purchased a, like a McLaren f1 <laughs> oh but yeah that no it's probably yeah probably I out of the budget like... yeah
1: <laughs> with our patreon dollars yeah. <laughs> um... i thought about i didn't buy the juicer either so, <laughs> but... isn't that crazy though that's like
0: yeah i wonder what's what's coming next i'm like now i I'm know like...
1: i was like i can't wait to... <laughs> wait to read the rest of this book like what else am i gonna see <laughs> because <laughs> i mean it's one of those things where it's so funny when they talk about design they're like you kind of just don't even realize it like everything around you has been designed right and so part of me's like maybe i've seen this juicer a million times and i just this is the first time i noticed it but it's a pretty unusual object yeah like i've never I feel seen like it i would have noticed it yeah. so and then the mclaren who knows i mean i didn't even realize what i was looking at when i looked at it
0: (laughs) i think the mclaren f1's most notable appearance recently was in the show uh, silicon valley
1: yeah um, right because I tried to google I was like who owns this and I started googling McLaren Silicon Valley and that didn't come up with the results yeah I was looking for but right. it was amusing yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it like and I even saw I mean geez like the valet there like great great day like, I know I like... saw him like drive it out and I saw the doors like lift up and oh I was like, no <laughs> yeah no I was just like wow that's a really fancy sports car like Wow. <laughs> yeah. So.
0: Well, I'll tell you, the stars have aligned uh, for this for this book club. I,
1: yeah, it was like as I googled it more and more, I was just like wow, I can't believe we saw one of those. And then I got, I was like, how much does those cost? And I was like, <laughs> seven to eight figures. I was like, whoa. And then it was like, this goes really fast. And it was like, only seven are street legal. I was like, okay, this is like crazy. Right. I saw one of these. They're and not... that, you know,
0: that might not have been one of them, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah. No, I was like, maybe this was the eighth one that like, right. you know, the founder of like Twitter is driving. or something. <laughs> yeah. I, have, I have no idea, but I'm sure... <laughs> I'm sure someone owned it that we probably know their product one way or another. Yes, it's
0: someone but like that. Yeah. Likely. So
1: anyway, that was my fun story. That's that a, I was that's really a great story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. Anyway, well, now I probably jinxed it now, but, you know, cross. let's cross the fingers yes. for
0: which, whatever That's chapter like, three will bring.
1: I know, I know. I, I actually started reading ahead. I was like, let's see.
0: <laughs> I know, maybe this book has like special powers, you know.
1: It's just, the, you know, the universe is rewarding me for like this train of thoughts. So I'm just going to keep going, so.
0: All right. Well, I have, um, I have some, before we, so before we continue on our discussion of uh, design, the Nigel Cross's design thing, I have a little bit of follow-up. Um, so first, uh, I want to thank Nathan Yao for giving us a shout-out on the Flowing Data newsletter.
1: Oh, um, and that's uh, great. That's awesome. Yeah, And
0: also, I want to give a reverse shout-out, which is that he has a new newsletter called The Process. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you've seen it, but um, no. it's a subscription only, um, but it's pretty cheap. And uh, it's it's absolutely fantastic. It's really, really good. I'm um, very
1: intrigued by the title because it sounds like it's about process.
0: Yeah, it's exactly what it's about, and it's it's you know so far it's only like three or four issues so far. I I think I think he does it every week, and uh, it's mostly about visualization, as you might expect. Um, But it's it's really well written. It's uh, it's a great little thing to read every week. So I highly recommend it.
1: Awesome! Yeah, I will definitely sign up. That's that is. Thank you, Nathan, for the shout out. Yeah, that actually is making me realize how much. I mean, he's probably one of these people who's, like, intuitively understood design principles for so long that he can't describe it. You know? Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, And it seems like the number of people just on Twitter and elsewhere have are, are into the book club idea. So thanks to all of them. Yeah, members.
1: no, it's been really fun to see. Someone tweeted out a photo that was, like, so, like, Instagram worthy. Right. And, like,
0: <laughs> it was for the grams, like, you know
1: yeah <laughs> of like yeah reading the book on our ipad with like a cup of coffee it's like knows how to get straight to my heart so, <laughs> i appreciated that but yeah and ap- i do i feel like apologizing again that we had such a like soft launch of the book club i think mean, everyone was like oh i missed the like i can't believe i'm so behind i missed it i'm like no it's, it's our fault we <laughs> we're a little subtle with the launch I felt. maybe
0: when it's maybe when we're done we can like release this set of episodes as like a little i don't know so like a like a group you know
1: yeah we can have a coursera book club yeah. like yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: it's like that quarter credit class in my college yeah exactly like, there you go yeah asynchronous anyway
0: um the next bit of follow-up is related to the book it's related to the first chapter and it's about the abductive reasoning
1: Yes. No. You ping me about this. I'm very excited to hear. So <laughs> clarification. I. So here
0: I need to give a shout out to Lucy McGowan who uh, pointed to me to a YouTube video which, like, very concisely describes the differences between abductive, inductive, and deductive reasoning.
1: Oh, perfect.
0: So, um, anyway, so I learned a lot from that video and from other things, and now I think I have a. Ha- so after, it was, <laughs> let me just emphasize that this was not like it wasn't like easy i just (laughs) but i think i've got it ahead a lot after like thinking about it for like quite a bit um okay so last in the last episode we talked about like what is this abductive reason reasoning and what does it have to do with design and maybe what does it have to do with data analysis um and i think the basic idea so like with deductive reasoning there's like a rule or like a kind of a cause-effect relationship right um and so like air pollution causes death right um and then if you see air pollution, then you can reason that deaths will be higher, right? mm mm-hmm. Because the rule okay. is so, true.
1: Like a causal link, yeah. Yeah. What she just said. All yeah. Right.
0: <laughs> and then inductive reasoning is like you see lots of instances of air pollution and death, right? Um, and so then you infer that there must be some rule that links air pollution and, you know, death. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: So it's not quite causal, it's just like...
0: Well, you, you infer that there must be some causal relationship after seeing it many, many times, you know?
1: I see, yeah, yeah. okay. It's kind
0: of like what we do in like epidemiology, for example.
1: Right, like smoking yes. causes cancer. Right. Yeah.
0: So then abductive is just kind of like... So there's three elements. There's like the rule, there's the cause, and then the effect. Um, and so abductive reasoning is, you know, you assume that there's some rule, like air pollution causes death, um, and then if you observe people dying... Uh, you you might infer that they were exposed to air pollution. Mm. Now, of course, that's not necessarily true <laughs> because even though the rule is true, like there's many things that can cause death, right? Um, and so it and so the idea it's kind of, it's I mean, I think for us it's kind of like a bayesian calculation, right? We can we know that air pollution causes death, but given the given that we've seen death, does that mean that they were exposed to air pollution? It may or may not. Um, because you're kind of reversing the conditioning here, um, and so the, what it, what it depends on ultimately is kind of the context and like what's the prevalence of air pollution in the area, you know, um, and things like that. And so, and so I think for, in the context of design, um, it's really more about like you know the the abductive process is like is kind of like you know to to quote like the, the 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 design sprint book, you know, that we talked about many episodes ago. You know, it's kind of a start from the end process. You know, start at the end. Right. Uh, and then so given the requirements of a problem and given the situation that you know that you're trying to deal with, how do we come up with a solution? Not the solution, right? But how do we come up with a solution um that satisfies the requirements? Um I see. And so that's the kind of abductive aspect of it.
1: So there okay, so there's like is there still does causality matter? For it sounds like yes, right?
0: Well, I think in the in other contexts, it seems yes, it does. But I feel like when you map it to design, I think the causality kind of it kind of it kind of loses I don't know, emphasis. Because um, I I don't feel like we're saying that like okay, this solution causes the you know problem or so. You know, I don't know. It's just I think that language maybe doesn't map over. But the idea is that like. The, pr- the problem that you're trying to solve may be timeless <laughs> right in the sense that it can exist it can always be there but the solution that you develop will depend on um outside factors like the context and you know available technology or you know whatever the time period that you're in and things like that
1: i see okay yeah but okay so like thinking about the smoking causes cancer it's like saying like if you want to if you want to have lung cancer, <laughs> like, try smoking a pack a day.
0: Well, it's more like if, if a person with lung cancer comes into the hospital, would you conclude that they were a smoker? Oh. Right? And, you know, okay. if, you, if you concluded that they were a smoker, you, you'd be – it's a pretty good guess, I think. Um mm-hmm. But they might have been someone who lived in, like, I don't know, a really high air pollution, you know, city, and that's how they got lung cancer, too. So there's multiple solutions, so to speak, or causes. Um, for this problem, um, and which one is most likely kind of depends on outside factors or you know, um, con- I see your circ- your personal circumstances,
1: right? Because even like age or yeah, like location, that'll change all the kind of priors on whether or not you're a smoker, how likely it was that you lived in like near pollution or whatever.
0: Right. Yeah. So if you were like living in Antarctica for the last like five years whatever, like, there's no air pollution there, right? So it's probably not a, li- a viable cause, right? Um, right. Or you lived in a culture that really, you know, stigmatized smoking, for example, then, you know, it's mm-hmm. unlikely that you, you know. So anyway, so the, 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 in that sense, I think the, the cause, if you're trying to, like, diagnose a problem, the cause is dependent on a variety of factors. And I think in the design context, the solution is similarly dependent on, you know, a variety of outside factors.
1: Hmm. That makes sense to me. I guess I just still...
0: You don't sound like totally satisfied.
1: I think now it's like the way that they're using it, the way that they're using the term abductive reasoning in the context of describing design still feels like backwards a little bit. Yeah. In that, I feel like... I guess I still feel like the abductive reasoning they talk about in design would be something along the lines of, like, if you want to get lung cancer, try smoking a pack a day.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I, I guess, no, yeah, so that is, I think that is what is... Um. That's the that is the inferential process that goes on, but the point is yeah. So like, but the point is that that's not the only way to get lung cancer, right?
1: right. It's like you could also tell someone to like move to you know Beijing, some, <laughs> like Beijing, <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly, and um, and that would depend. The solution you would present would depend on like their willingness to move to China versus their willingness to start smoking or whatever. Right. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Hmm. Okay, I buy it. I buy it. It's just it's just sort of odd. It makes me think that the productive thinking. I I kind of like the idea of productive thinking as like wrapping it up and being able to communicate quickly, versus describing it as abductive reasoning is like. It feels very academic.
0: Yes, it definitely. (laughs) Yeah, it definitely has that academic flavor to
1: it. (laughs) Yeah, which is totally fine because the whole point of that chapter and that line of you know thought is defining the field academically so that they can teach it in like primary school right well has <laughs> like its own version of knowledge rather than a version of science versus a version of art
0: i think it's maybe worth um, considering this idea in the context of data analysis though in terms of how do we it does it help us think about the, does this abductive process or abductive reasoning help us think about what happens in the in data analysis. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that um, one of the things that I think is interesting is that, um, you know, I think many times in when we teach data analysis or statistics to students who are new to the area, there is, I think there's often a desire um, upon the part of the student for there to be kind of a one-to-one mapping between problems and solutions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. and, And the idea being that there's like a rule. So you encounter this problem and it, and you are, forced to use this solution, right? Because there's only one solution for every problem, right? Um, And I think this, I think the explanation of abductive reasoning kind of shows that like, that that's not how it works. Um, For any given solution with a set of requirements, um, there may be, sorry, any given problem with a set of requirements, you know, there may be multiple feasible solutions and the choice of solution that we, or the choice of approach that we take, uh, may be dictated by phenomena that are outside the data, Um, Right.
1: Yeah. No, I really, I actually really like that because my favorite, like, hedgy statistician language that I use is something along the lines of, like, well, these data are consistent with the hypothesis that blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, And so I like that because it, I always like saying it that way because I feel like it directly communicates, like, the hedginess you have to have (laughs) when you're talking about any sort of conclusion you're drawing from data or it's like, you know, like even like a p-value or the Bayesian approach, like it's, it's all about this, like, well, you know, if this thing were true, this would be a really rare event versus if this other thing were true, it wouldn't be a rare event or, you know, whatever. Um, so I kind of like that. Yeah. I like the idea that Like, capturing that hedginess.
0: (laughs) Formalizing hedginess.
1: Yeah, formalizing hedginess. Or, like, formalizing the need for the hedginess.
0: Yeah. it's. I can see that it's deeply unsatisfying, though, right?
1: Oh, totally, yeah. 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 I mean, but that's, like, what's new. I mean...
0: you fair enough, yeah.
1: The whole point for us talking about this for three years.
0: Right.
1: Like, like there's no satisfying answer here. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But maybe if we just keep talking about it, like, you know, you'll get used to it.
1: Exactly, yeah. Well, that seems to be what happens in the design field. There's more of an acceptance of, like, you know, the problem spaces will be, like, ill-defined and difficult to deal with. And that's the whole point of this field is to build something from that.
0: Well, that's, I think visualization is an interesting case, a special case in data analysis, because I think what, one of the ways – it, it didn't occur to me till now that, like, the way that we decide – um, which methods are better or for certain situations um, is is actually dictated by factors outside the data right the data don't tell you use this method or that method use a box plot versus a pie chart oh that was a bad comparison uh, you know the, the data don't say use a bar chart instead of a pie chart the the, the criteria that we use to, to kind of choose different visualizations have to do with like cognitive like perception and how the brain sees things and everything but like there's nothing in the in any given data set that tells us, you know, that information.
1: No, I, I'm so glad you brought that up because that's been on my mind as well. Um, especially because so like, so this, the keynote I gave in Japan that I'm sort of iterating through in my head, I wasn't, I wasn't a hundred percent satisfied with trying to differentiate art from design in that talk. Um, right. I sort of talk about art as empathy, but then that's also like, a big part of design thinking they talk about empathy a ton when they talk about that um and so i think that in some ways i think you're right that like it's almost like the aesthetic intuition around how to visualize data is sort of the closest i can think of when i think of sort of artistic emotional <laughs> like expression you know what i mean
0: yeah i think so
1: yeah <laughs> like pause,
0: <laughs> well, you know it's I had to ponder,
1: yeah, but no, i I mean, but to your point, yeah, I think that it's um I guess the the line between art and design seems still pretty blurry to me, um where I mean, I think of like true art as yeah, just someone sort of like expressing themselves somehow, this has become their mode of expression, and to some degree though, they care if it like lands with the audience, right. Like, you want to express your... I guess the very true artist, like, doesn't care.
0: I mean, if you want to take art in its purest form, I feel like it, like it's not... I, I, okay, maybe the other way to put it is I feel like design's purpose is inherently to be useful. Um, like, you're not designing if you're just, like... If you don't plan on anything... Plan on the thing really being useful to anybody. Um, so, so maybe... I think art in its more pure form is like, is the opposite of that, I guess.
1: Right. Yeah. It's like, okay, here's the question. Is art about expressing emotion or conveying emotion?
0: <laughs> How do we go down this road?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Cause well, I feel like with data visualization, it's like, it's the same thing where it's like fundamentally about communicating something, or maybe it's not i don't know like
0: no i think it i think it is i would say it is about communicating something
1: yeah Um, although i mean i think about like the the guy who did his year um his like personal analytics every year like felton or feltron
0: yeah yeah i don't remember his name but i know what you're talking about
1: yeah yeah and um i mean he has a bunch of he has this like visualization we talked about it on the podcast like a couple years ago but he had a book that came out that was all about visualizing data like kind of like time-lapse photography visualization yeah 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 where he would yeah like take pictures of flights taking off and stuff and i mean that was getting pretty far from Although it was about like kind of the trying to communicate the impact of like, if you want to like really feel in your bones, how many planes take off a day, like seeing it in this time-lapse way might be the most effective way. So
0: what's your point? I don't know. I <laughs> okay. mean, my point
1: was just that like, <laughs> to me, like trying to figure out how to tease those apart might be impossible even though I tried to do it once. And I still think the way I did it was like, okay, but just it wasn't satisfying. And I think that when I think about people who do truly innovative stuff with data visualization, I think of them as artists.
0: I see. I see what you mean. Um, Well, I do think, I mean, I think very often art and usefulness can coincide, right? I mean, it's not like they're not allowed to be together yeah um so well, maybe and that's like yeah.
1: traditional design that's why i feel like so many designers like seem like artists you know if they like dress cool like, <laughs> Oh, here we go I, yeah i don't know it's just like they're they're like they're skilled at expression through non-traditional means
0: we may have to defer this conversation for a later episode <laughs> <laughs> i feel like there's more to talk about here but i need to chew on it
1: yeah okay well that's good we can have this as like the teaser for roger's deep thought i mean you're more of the artist than me i feel like well i don't know i'm like i'm like a rising i'm I'm getting in touch with my artistic side (laughs) okay (laughs) but you've been like in touch with your musical side for a really long time
0: okay yeah yeah, because I'm older than you. That's why.
1: <laughs> well, I feel like you were consistently playing the violin for like your whole life.
0: That's true. I have had more time to think about it. I guess. Yeah.
1: Yep. Cool. Okay. Do you want to actually talk about the chapter now? Sure.
0: Yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get to... So we're on chapter two of the book now.
1: Yeah, and uh, it's called "Designing to Win." I thought I thought I would just do like a very brief recap of the chapter. Yeah. Um. It's just like I mean yeah. So this chapter is all about um. Designing Formula One racing cars, and then some of like and a few like other projects from this designer, whose named Gordon Murray. Um, and so there's a, there's a lot of content about like some pretty interesting and cool design decisions (laughs) around the, um, like the racing cars that they were building, um, for competition. Um, and it's really cool because he talks a lot about like all of the constraints that are put on race car designers. Um, you know, you have like, you have like literal rules from the, um, from the like i don't know what you call
0: it but like formula one body the
1: formula yeah. M- one people
0: <laughs> yeah
1: they have rules and then there's also you know just like a it's like a very technical thing to build a race car um so there's a lot of constraints like technically um and then there's also like a huge time pressure because they're trying to turn around these race cars really fast um And it's intensely competitive, which I didn't realize until reading this chapter. I mean, I should have known that, like, duh. But, I mean, it sounds like they're basically, it's like quicksand. Like, you're always designing something and then designing the next thing after that. Like, you see the competition in a race, and then you want to have a new design for the next race based on what you saw from the competition. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, and then it briefly goes into, yeah, some other things that they, that he's designed and like radical design innovations, like how long do you iterate on an existing design versus just totally throw it out and start over. Um, and then, yeah. And then they talk about the F1, which is the car that I saw this yeah, weekend. It's basically
0: your car, right? Yeah,
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> By the end of, like, once I've told this story enough, I'm going to have driven the car for, like, the whole weekend (laughs) and, like, met the owner. (laughs) (laughs) I I didn't look inside, like, I just kind of saw it from afar, and then Michael, my partner, went and looked inside, but neither of us noticed. They talk about how the the driver's seat is, like, in the middle of the car. Right. And then there's two passenger seats sort of behind the shoulders of the driver.
0: Yeah, like an arrowhead, I think is what they called it.
1: Yeah, yeah the arrowhead. And I was like, oh, I wish I'd seen it. If I had <laughs> only read the chapter, like, a day earlier. Anyway, I don't want to think about it.
0: Um, I th- So I thought the chapter was interesting in its kind of discussion of how constraints um, kind of cause things to happen.
1: Absolutely. I guess, I to, I, that's everything I highlighted was very similar. Yeah.
0: Like, and like, I guess he, he talks about kind of there's two sets of constraints. There's one that's like the rules of the governing body of Formula One. Uh, and then there's just like the laws of physics. Right. <laughs> Which obviously cannot be violated. Um, yeah.
1: And it's, I mean, the part that I was saying, I didn't realize how competitive it is, is that they describe a really ingenious way of essentially getting around one of the rules that the, um, the formula one governing body like set down, um, which was something about how low the car could get, because I guess that sort of creates almost like suction between the car and the ground, um, and aerodynamically it goes way faster and it can like do tighter turns and whatever. Um, and it was like, uh, I mean presumably they had a good reason to try to make it illegal to do that because they were like, you know, this is, we're worried that the drivers are going to literally get knocked out from like the force of the car. Um, but then they immediately basically designed a hack around it (laughs) That was definitely like genius, but I I just found that whole thing like I was I was really shocked with the extent to which they were um, trying to subvert the rules,
0: <laughs> right? Without like violating them completely.
1: Exactly. Yeah, and especially because these rules ostensibly were designed to keep drivers safe. Um, right. So that was sort of an interesting. <laughs> I. I don't know. I did you? I I didn't know how to take that one, but
0: yeah. I mean, I don't know. I guess I, I mean it, it's one of the things that he highlights in the chapter is how competitive is like I mean, we talked about how competitive it is, and like and really it's like first of all you're like fighting the laws of physics, right, which you can never win against, and so you're trying to like scrape away every millisecond and every kind of tiny little advantage that you might be able to get, and it, there's kind of like a you know go at all costs you know attitude um and uh I, I i would assume that obviously safety is factored in but probably just to the bare minimum <laughs> right yeah, <laughs> yeah no
1: i mean presumably the drivers are like signing off on this i mean sure
0: yeah like, obviously yeah they're yeah.
1: like man it sucks that that rule went away like let's but yeah i mean the the ingeniousness Of the solution he describes is pretty impressive where it was like they essentially created this water valve that was like very I don't know it it was a really teeny tiny hole for so that it didn't it didn't just like change dramatically when you hit the brakes or something it took a really long time for the water to displace something. Right. (laughs) And so they like, basically it's like once you started driving, it lowered the car and then in about a lap or two, when you weren't going fast, it would raise it back up
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah.
1: It wasn't like they were lowering it, but it was clearly lower. And he was like, everyone went crazy. And then like two races later, they like essentially reversed the rule.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, I guess the key is that like the system was not controlled by the driver. So the car kind of naturally went up and down um and then, and then i guess later on they changed the rules so that like the driver could have a control that just lowers the car exactly yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's like oh
1: well that makes it easier so i guess yeah. that gets into this idea of as long as the driver feels safe then i right. don't know how much i believe with that because you know a lot of people a lot of drivers have died so <laughs>
0: it is an inherently dangerous sport right it's like you haven't given that up right <laughs> um, <laughs> But, yeah,
1: like like humans opting into something doesn't make it okay, but yeah, <laughs> I guess in this case I'm okay with it because it's really cool. Is is F one racing as dangerous as like NASCAR or IndyCar? I
0: I don't know like the relative dangerousness of the different styles of racing. They all seem pretty dangerous to me. Yeah, um, so I'm not entirely sure. But I only
1: uh, know. I mean, I'm from Indianapolis, but I didn't ca- follow racing i just know everyone knows about there's like that one driver whose dad died uh and then he's a racer i can't remember his name
0: oh okay (laughs) it's
1: it's like a really obvious one it's like the most famous race car driver ever so but
0: we briefly had formula one here in baltimore actually
1: oh yeah Uh, i was there when we had that yeah oh yeah that's right yeah i remember seeing the streets like blocked off near the inner harbor
0: right right yeah well, the, one, the one example that I thought was interesting was the one about the pit stops, actually. Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah, um, that was fascinating. Because
0: I didn't realize that they didn't, like, previously do pit stops. Um, or, like, they only did pit stops if there was, like, a problem. Uh, um, and I guess he pioneered this idea of, like, doing a scheduled pit stop um, so that you could kind of prevent problems before they occur, <laughs> which I guess is a novel idea. Um, and But the problem is that the pit stops themselves take up a, a lot of time, and so he kind of, like... A spearheaded this approach where they try to like optimize every little bit of the pit stop. Um, and including, I guess there was a problem is that like if you put new tires on the car, the, the tires are cold. And so you ha- it takes like a lap or two to warm them up to the appropriate speed, appropriate temperature. And so they just stuck the tires in an oven. Yeah.
1: They're like, well, let's <laughs> so up. You know, yeah. I, I thought that was really interesting because um, the way that he, described it. By the time he presented the solution, I had come up with the solution. It was like, oh well just heat up the tires then. Right. But it was because it's like that last chapter. There's so much about organizing the problem and defining it and like setting up the setting up the problem space is so much part of it that once you do that, the solution sort of pops out at you.
0: Right. Oh like if you do like like so much work goes into kind of ordering the problem
1: exactly yeah the ordering principle that's right so that like when you describe the solution i mean i think that's why people just react to good design so intuitively because it's like once the universe has been ordered in that way it's like oh yeah of course why wouldn't you heat up the tires but it's like the type of thinking that you have to get there is that's like just such a hard place to get to when you haven't ordered the universe yet
0: yeah, and I, I, I can sense from the chapter that he, you know, he like this area that he worked in was so highly constrained and 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 essentially kind of ordered for him, and more so than other areas. Like he talked about how working in other areas where there weren't. Any rules or things like that and he was like very kind of confused about what to do right yeah (laughs) it's
1: like i I have the quote here i I highlighted it and other design fields as he had discovered the lack of regulations can be slightly bewilder bewildering allowing the designer to wander at whim in a very loosely bounded solution space right and so he liked the idea of like the like the competitive nature, the tight constraints, like both from man-made rules as well as the laws of nature, like, and then having this like team he constructs, which he talks about a little bit later. It's just like it, it seemed like it was just like a hotbed of creative thinking.
0: Right. Yeah. And um, but the uh, the pit stop example though, I thought was interesting because he talks about how uh, it's it, it's kind of used as an example for taking a systems approach to the problem.
1: Totally. Yeah.
0: Uh, and kind of, and you know, the way he describes it. Uh, is like, you know, the designer is kind of at the center of activity, which I I don't know if that's actually true, but it seems like it, right? Um, And uh, because the designer kind of sees into the various aspects of the problems, Technical and otherwise, and um, and and then has to and is and he's kind of looking at everything and trying to optimize whatever can be optimized. Um, And I think, but I think there's another principle here, which is that the designer has to like look at all the various aspects of the problem and kind of balance the different priorities um, that will kind of achieve the best solution. Because there's a tendency for each person who's involved in a problem to think that their problem, their issue, is like the most important thing. Um, and, uh, and so it's like, there is someone who's in charge of kind of like, okay, saying like, this is most important and this is second most important, et cetera. Um, and that's, I think that's part of what he calls like the systems approach in terms of integrating everything together. Um, and looking at not just optimizing little bits of the problem.
1: Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. He, I had another quote that was on, along the same lines about, you know, him talking about like needing to go back to the fundamental, like first principles of the problem, um, and, like, reconsider the first principles or, like, always build from the first principles rather than presumably building, like, iterating from an existing design. It's sort of funny. One one thing that that um, popped into my mind when I was reading this chapter was the idea of like outside the box thinking, quote unquote. I
0: I, I feel you using finger quotes. Air I, quotes. Yes,
1: I did. You're right. <laughs> so glad. Yes.
0: I can't see it, but I, it just sounded like it, yeah. <laughs> this
1: is like we've. <laughs> This is, like, the podcast, you know, like, the next level when you can, like, visualize the air quotes. That's right. Yeah. No, but it's, like, I guess I've always found that phrase to be kind of, like, especially the more that I feel the need to use it, the more I hate it. (laughs) Because it's such a cliche. (laughs) It's, like, think outside the box. But it actually describes, like, I feel like it's too trite to describe, like, just how important this is. Where it's like, it, when he talks about going back to the first principles, it's like essentially saying like, yeah, throw out the box and like start from nothing and right. build from yeah. there and allow yourself to think about the entire system and allow yourself to think about the design of the like drill that they were using or like whatever the bolt tightener thing, like it, presumably it was like taking too long to put on and off. And so they just totally redesigned it to make it faster, um and yeah so it's just sort of i don't know i wish i wonder how many designers also hate the i like the phrase think outside the box
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> one of the things i thought was uh i think this is what he said in the book is um how like the schedule of the racing was such that you know there was you had to kind of like work really fast between races and then there was like a brief break like a two-month break um where there was the, you know it was kind of like the off season um and then you're like back on schedule uh, and so the schedule kind of dictated what kinds of changes you could make and so you you know it's like in in between races you might iterate because there's no time to like throw out everything uh but then maybe between the seasons you could like design a new car or really or really go you know kind of start thinking first principles again and so but i but th- I imagine in general though it's difficult to decide yeah, you know, are we going to be iterating or are we going to just throw everything out yeah Oh, um, and he describes
1: a few times when he essentially messed that up and he was like i was too ambitious and like the ideas were right but i wasn't being realistic about the constraints and so you know later when i had more time i was able to put this together like some car with like where the person's basically lying down um oh right yeah Yeah, so he talks about that i mean was, i, I kind of chuckled because like his only examples of failures were like good ideas that just took a little longer <laughs> like,
0: <laughs> a little little humble brag there yeah, exactly
1: <laughs> but you know whatever i get it <laughs> this is his whole identity as being a good designer so what can you do yeah
0: I mean, I, I don't think um, he's there was definitely no lack of ego there, I think. But um.
1: <laughs> yeah, but it's like, I mean, I think my attitude about sports in general is that it's so much pressure and any sort of insecurity is going to just you will get torn down if people sniff it out of you. And so you basically have to be an egomaniac. <laughs> Otherwise, like, how would you survive like millions of people criticizing you like every day?
0: Yeah, that's um, that's a, that seems like a fair assessment. Um, yeah.
1: <laughs> and then it like goes awry, and someone's like horrible, and everyone's like, "How did this happen?" And it's like, "What are you talking about? We made this happen." Like, right. like... <laughs> 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 anyway, anyway, that's my aside. A brief
0: aside yeah. on sports.
1: Yeah, I, I actually, you know, it's funny because I've actually talked a lot about this with my partner because you have someone like Steph Curry, who's you know a basketball player on the warriors. But the people who seem to avoid this egomania trip are people whose parents were also professional athletes. Oh, okay. Yeah, and then it's like it's just a job. Like I mean not just a job, like I mean Steph Curry I'm not going to act like I don't totally like love him and, you know, I'm in San Francisco, so of course, but he just like seems like he's really having fun and his teammates talk about that like, you know, the joy he brings to the game and like you just have the sense that like the weight of the world is not on his shoulders. Right. Um, Yeah. Whereas other players, it totally is. And it's like, yeah, I don't know if you just grow up and you see basketball players as like kind of normal and you've met a ton of them. And like, that's your universe. Like you can just approach it in such a more like detached, healthy way. And, and you're, and you're used to, you kind of like have a normal filter on the criticism, not like you have to shut it out, but you're just like, yes, this is the way the world works. Like, right.
0: You're familiar with it already.
1: Yeah. Anyway, that's just an aside. On
0: I think there's a parallel there. Like sometimes I'll, I'll see people who's like see people who are academics whose parents are academics, um, and I, they just they see things differently than like if they're the first academics yeah. in their family. You, you
1: mean know. like me? Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you as what example? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: well, no. I. I mean, I was my mom. Yeah, my mom's a math professor. I'm not an academic, so, but. No, I think you're totally right. Like the, one of the best, um, books I ever read, which I didn't ever implement, but it was, I can't even remember the title exactly, but it was about academic writing. And it basically was just nailing it in your head. Like you have to write every day. Most of your papers are going to get rejected. Like you just have to do it and not be attached to the outcome. And like, that's just the way this gig is. And, you know, (laughs) If you're like, if you're attached to the outcome, you'll feel like a failure all the time. But if it's just like every day you work out, you write for two hours, you know, it's like it just gets the machine running. I feel like you've talked about that before.
0: Yeah. Yeah. On my other podcast. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, also, yeah, it's like you had a blog post, right? About like tenure, like, like you can't view tenure as as the goal. You just have to like the job like the whole time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's. I don't know if I, I can't remember. Did I write that?
1: <laughs> I thought you, maybe someone else wrote that as like a professorship at Harvard. Like you basically know you're not going to get tenure at Harvard. Right. Yeah, right. So you just kind of like have to want to do it for a while.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you want to bring this back to data science or? You wanna... Yeah, let's do
1: it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, I was just wondering, I thought, I didn't want to get too artificial about it, but I was wondering if, um, You know, if there, if you or I have encountered situations that are maybe analogous. Obviously, we're not racing cars, um, but in terms of like high pressure, kind of short timeline, highly constrained situations, um, and how that might like affect the way that you analyze data or or the choices that you make. I don't know. I mean, I think I, I mean, nothing in academia is like (laughs) is quite like sports. I think in terms of timeline and pressure um but um there are i mean i think when i think of situations where it's like sometimes situations come up and like data needs to be analyzed quickly let's say as opposed to like there's a long-term project and there's time to think about it and you know and um and we can kind of iterate through multiple things and see what works and uh, you know there is a difference there and um and the choices that you make, I mean, for example, like, you know, we might do, instead of doing some massive simulation or something like that, we'll just, I just use some quick approximation that, you know, that, that I think is reasonable or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, uh, if maybe if there's time later, you know, we'll just figure out the, the quote unquote real solution, um, you know, with like some computing or whatever.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so has that ever happened to me?
0: Well, I, I don't know. Maybe not that exact example, but, uh,
1: well, yeah. no, I was going to say that this is honestly why I like working in industry because <laughs> there's so many more, there's so much more emphasis on delivery and there are more constraints. It's like, it's like kind of what he was describing. Like, it's usually a little more competitive if you're in like any industry with competition, which I definitely am. And like, there's such more of a push for delivery that you have to usually make these little shortcuts or figure out like, okay, this is the perfect solution and this is the solution I'm actually going to go with. Um, and, and so I actually really like that. Um, I was also thinking when you described that situation, like, I remember one time in grad school, uh, Jeff Leake my advisor was like, uh, my advisor and frequent topic of discussion on this podcast, (laughs) and your co-coursera teacher right yeah he doesn't
0: listen so we can talk about it all yeah we can lot. talk
1: about it. but he was one time he had to like do a last minute flight to iceland to do a data analysis because he was doing some sort of genetic analysis and their iceland has this like really rich like database of all their people and like a fairly constrained genetic pool whatever so but they also have like rules about whether or not the data can live on servers outside of iceland and so, I think he literally had to fly there and do, like, an emergency data analysis.
0: <laughs> right. I remember that.
1: Yeah. it was, And it was right when there was that volcano going off that, like, stopped all the flights in Europe. But yeah. <laughs> he was, like, going to be, you know, downwind from the volcano. So, it was okay. <laughs> but, anyway, I feel like if anyone enjoys this, it's Jeff Leak. <laughs> <laughs> There's like always some constraint where he's like frantically doing an analysis.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it, there is something to be said. Like you can imagine, like um, <laughs> I can imagine teaching a course uh-huh. that's like data analysis under pressure. <laughs> yeah, totally. You know, or like data analysis. You know, just hacking it together when, you, when there's nothing else you can do. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah, <laughs> you have to do that too i had that in a few interviews where they give you a take-home problem and you have like 24 hours to do some sort of analysis on it
0: yeah i mean, I mean that's that's a real problem in the sense that like if you want to get a job you have to do it right, right? but like but otherwise it's a little artificial right But yeah uh, but i mean um,
1: that that scenario happens all the time when- which scenario uh where you have to do an analysis in like 24 hours
0: okay yeah Yeah. i
1: mean just something like a board meeting i mean usually i mean it's always artificial at some point like you know the whole world is artificial constraints but (laughs) (laughs) it's not usually like the laws of nature saying like if you don't do the state analysis like the world will end but fair okay but like you it'll be like a board meeting is coming up and like one of the you know someone realized that they want to get this one figure into the board deck. And then you're like, Oh, I have to pull this together really fast. And I mean, it's, it's super common. And like, I think that, I mean, different companies have different attitudes about deadline, but it's like the more you're public, the more you have to hit your deadlines because like, if you don't, like you could lose like millions of dollars or like Facebook billions of dollars. So there's like, (laughs) that constraint happens (laughs) so I and then I mean aside from there's also like if you like have community like public communication like at some point the like the relationship with the customer becomes a huge constraint where it's like you kind of have to do something because you said you would or like people expect you to and and then that one feels really real because like people are relying on you like you know you can't if you mess that up people will feel let down by you and that's you know (laughs) depending on your like codependency levels that could be really
0: (laughs) upsetting (laughs) well i I think the reason why this is interesting to talk about is because it's like i think you know many people might argue that under these kinds of constraints like it's not possible to do a good data or a successful data analysis right Mm -hmm. and uh but but on the other hand, we do it, right? Right. <laughs> you know, like yeah. we, we, it's like, and I think the solution that we come up with in these circumstances is, you know, like a good, stati- like a well-trained analyst or statistician will say, okay, well, here's the best that we could do given what we have, and here's what we're assuming, and here are the caveats, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But there will be a solution provided, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then maybe, you know, we'll follow up with whatever. But, um, you know, I think these are the kinds of things that, like, you, they don't get factored into, like, the, you know, mean squared error or whatever, you know, whatever. Totally. You know, it's yeah. like um, Well,
1: they should, though, get factored into at least the assumptions, right? Like, to some degree.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, ultimately, there's very often a trade-off between assumptions and time, right? Like, more assumptions usually means less time, right?
1: That's a good, yeah, that's a very good way of putting it.
0: So, I mean, I guess at some point, you could just assume everything, and then there's no analysis, right? But, um, <laughs>
1: That's a really good point. Yeah, and then that's where the ethical duty of a data analyst, data scientist is to say, like, you know, what... Given the... Like, at what point are you misleading with the assumptions? Or are you not... Like, there's, like, genuine errors where you didn't realize something was an assumption that was. Or there's just, like, you downplay the assumptions because you want the audience. Like, at what point is it, like, artful delivery versus... Actually, you didn't communicate this clearly.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That yeah. seems like different. I mean, that's where the constraints of the Formula One racing is nice because there's such an obvious success or failure. Like right. There's winning, yeah. and then there's like, did your car run? Like both of right. those are <laughs> like pretty. Well, easy also there's
0: to... adjudication. You know, so like you know, when they built that weird hydraulic system, there were all all the competitors were like, that's a violation of the rules. Um, and like there's like an adjudication basically process um, and that doesn't we don't have that all the time for data analysis you know it's like
1: yeah. also that reminds me of like when we were talking about being competitive I was like I feel like I left something out but it was that they literally built like a decoy like thing <laughs> So that everyone was like, "Oh, clearly the, the hydraulics or like the system that's lowering the car is in this box that like is new on the car." But it was like they literally had just like rigged up a fake box so that everyone would focus on that,
0: right? Instead of the <laughs> yeah. hydraulic system, yeah.
1: <laughs> that was like I was like, "Wow, it's dirty." That's
0: a, <laughs> a wily maneuver, is what I.
1: There was, um, so there was one other quote I wanted to, um, well uh, actually first I'm like scrolling past the city car design that just, I just thought this was cool because there was like this very interesting looking city car and I was like, why can't I buy this? And apparently it's just like, it's kind of like a concept car right now, but shell made a version of it. So maybe it's going to come out one day, but anyway, um, no, so there was a quote he talked about, um, his team. And he had some great way of putting it where he was like, I want everyone to like, when you cut them, I want them to bleed motor oil. (laughs) (laughs) And I really liked that. I felt that was like validating to my feeling that data analysts and designers, you really need to care about the problem you're working on. Yeah. Yeah. I felt like, um, I mean, it just makes me feel more and more strongly about this hypothesis that in order to be a successful data analyst, you have to. Like, the the power of, like, intuition, or, like, I don't know even how to put it, but, like, your ability to explore the solution space is so constrained if you don't care about the problem you're working on.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And I was sort of thinking about it, like, in the sense that, so was sort of like a big thing to unpack at the end of the episode. but it's like if you think about like we talked a lot about like analysis, it's kind of like this rhetorical method or this language um, like the design thinking is like rhetorical, yeah, yeah. and so I think the the thing I was thinking about here was like essentially, if you think about data analysis as like rhetoric or language, then, if you don't care about the field it's like you're a translator but if you care about it it's like you're like writing in that field
0: oh uh, okay yeah right.
1: and so it's like i mean and i was like well i'm sure translation is like a rich and rewarding career like you know there's people who translate like ancient buddhist texts and japanese you know there's really there like, cool things to do there but i think for the average person they would rather be like writing than translating
0: well, I, I think it's fair to say that those are different things, right? I mean, w- what what people might be preferring to do is, you know, who knows? But <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> it's irrelevant. But, Good point. But I think it's clear to most people that those are different mental processes, mm-hmm. uh, and they're different activities, and like I think result in different kind of output, right?
1: Totally. Yeah and it's like you know you can go pretty far with translation like you know there are there are data science problems out there that will not be as like stimulating as others like you know
0: yeah yeah
1: so it's just like that's like a reality and like you can totally get by translating and like you can usually get pretty far in the problem by just like taking a method that works somewhere else and applying it to this new field but It's like, I mean, for me personally, yeah, like moving to a field where, you know, I really care about the thing I'm working on. Just it's like light night and day, you know, it's so much more fun.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, it it kind of like doesn't feel like work anymore. Right. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm glad that landed. I. I'm just gonna go with it for yeah I'm looking up this quote now it's like if you cut them they bleed motor motor oil and also it was interesting he talks about how you just like you don't really need to have like an R&D department because like everyone just keeps up with the latest in race car news because like they care about it
0: right they can't not keep up with it (laughs) exactly yeah yeah it's
1: like that's yeah that's pretty cool
0: I wanted to get one highlight that I had in here so when he was talking about uh designing the mclaren f one mm-hmm. the car um, that I own the car that your car basically, yeah, is, yeah. <laughs> they um uh they installed a five meter long drawing board in the design office oh yeah, so that they could have a a full size drawing of the car that was which cool. I thought was really cool, yeah.
1: yeah and they would like kind of all that that was also where he he like described himself as like a somewhere between a dictator and something else. Oh, Dictator yeah, was yeah. the only one that stayed in my mind, <laughs> <laughs> but it, that was interesting. He was basically kind of like, "Listen, I'm not going to act like I'm not the like the person in charge here," and like. I think I have the best ideas, but I do want everyone to feel like they're contributing. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, yeah, no. So it's like, they would kind of all like be working on different parts of the car. They might like all huddle around one part and talk about it and bounce ideas. Yeah. That's what he said. He said, I want people around so I can bounce my ideas off of them.
0: Right. Yeah. But But they're, they're his ideas. Exactly.
1: (laughs) 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 But I don't know. I kind of get it. Like, I don't know.
0: I, there's one story I heard about Steven Spielberg who, um, when he, when he makes movies, like he doesn't like to do table reads where like everyone sits around a table and reads the script out loud, um, and the reason apparently he gave is that he didn't want people to think that that making a movie is a democratic process.
1: Yeah, no, I love it. Yeah. I think that's fair. Um anyways. I that's yeah, now I'm just getting into it. <laughs> This is what is so hard about especially I'm I'm working a ton with like our product design team or like our product team in general, but you run into that so much when you're designing like a new feature on a website or a new feature, you know, in a e-commerce company. Um like everyone has an a, opinion about it and they're like all going to be emailing your ideas and like 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 bouncing ideas off of you at various points in time. And at some point it's kind of just like, okay, this is like, stop. (laughs) (laughs) Like we're the ones in charge of this. (laughs) right? And like, we're thinking about this all the time. And it's not that we don't value your input, but like at some point it's like past input time.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, um, there's like the, there's kind of like this time for like, there's like kind of a divergent thinking where it's like you're kind of making possibilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the, the, the opposite of that is kind of the convergent thinking where you need to like bring everything together and and make decisions basically. Totally. Um, yeah. Well, and and then... that's,
1: that's one of the things I really like about the design sprint was that it had kind of a script for how to do that. And if you're, if you're, if you cast a sufficiently wide net during the divergent thinking part, and then everyone participates in it converging, then you won't run into this feeling of like everyone's pinging you all the time because, they want this idea to get in. Like they'll, they'll get that feeling that they contributed and that their ideas were heard. But then you're like, after day three, you're like, okay, we're going with this. We made the decisions, like no more time for, <laughs> right. for like the divergent part. So right. it can just kind of be like an effective way of getting everyone on the same page about like, who's the decision maker, what's going forward. Like what phase are we at in this process? Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Should we leave chapter two there? I think um, so,
1: but yeah, that was I'm surprised. I, I'm not like a race car person. I mean, I am now that I own one. You are, I mean since yeah. you bought the McLaren. Yeah. <laughs> but I was surprised how much I enjoyed this chapter. Uh yeah,
0: it was it was interesting just to read the different case studies and I mean, not again, not knowing anything about the area.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And it was like it the parallel I, I'm surprised how much it still felt like a parallel to data science. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Especially
1: thinking about the constraints, which I guess we didn't really talk about, but just, you know, like data analysis, there's so many constraints in terms of like what's true versus what's not. What's like, what are valid methods versus what aren't. And so it's a very similar process.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think our version of the laws of physics are like, you know, we do have rule laws that you know are like things that are right and things that are wrong in terms of the tools that we use uh, and we're not we can't violate that either um exactly but there is that still does even the, even for example with the laws of physics and you know with the cars it's like that still does leave a lot of room uh for different solutions
1: mm-hmm. yeah no exactly yeah it was it was cool